Heavenly Father, you are so good, so gracious in all that you do and all that you are. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would never take you for granted, your promises, your faithfulness for granted, your word and your truth. And once again, God, all that you've provided for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you that we can continue to learn and grow and apply, and we can do this together as a church body for your glory. Please bless this time now in your, in your precious and perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis chapter 3, it's where we're at. This new section in our Genesis 1 through 11 series, which is God's story of beginnings. And uh, we're going by the seas of world history, right? Which you're not going to find in any school or college or university textbooks. Uh, the seas of world history. The first one we covered in Genesis 1 and 2, creation. And today in chapter 3, we are covering corruption or starting corruption. This is part 1 of corruption and part 10 in the series overall, I'm pretty sure. So coming soon, or pretty soon at least, is Genesis 6 through 9, which is catastrophe, right? The, the worldwide universal flood and the ark of Noah and salvation for that family. And then confusion in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel and the beginning of human languages and different people groups. So we are looking forward to getting into all of that, but we are in Genesis 3 now, corruption. And as we get going here, I want to ask, have you ever watched the news or seen something on social media that makes you come away from it asking, what is wrong with people? What is wrong with people? And uh, just for example, um, you know, just the other day I I saw the news of a 17-year-old kid who got gunned down in Palmdale uh, with just with an argument of someone who was driving along the street, and um, somehow or another, I don't know the details of it, but uh, they shot him right there, and he was found dead. And this same 17-year-old two years ago was a 15-year-old who, in Venice, was found uh, driving, was videotaped driving into an alleyway, um, and a mom, young mom and her, with her baby stroller was walking down the alleyway. And for some reason, this 15-year-old driver kid decided to turn towards the baby and the mom to try to run them over. And the baby and mom, uh, the mom kind of protected her baby and the stroller flipped over and she got flipped over, but um, she immediately went to her her baby, uh, even though she was just completely uh, wrecked. And um, so this same kid uh, two years ago was was the driver um, and he was 15 and he was under the influence of some drugs. Uh, he already had a different um, reason why he should have been arrested. He was not arrested. He was put in a five-month just kind of juvenile delinquent, almost like a camp, and then let go. In any case, uh, fast forward two years later, and he's, he's, uh, he's been shot down in Palmdale. So what, what, is, what is wrong with people? What is wrong with the system? Um, have you ever wondered why things like the following exist in the world, violence like this, murder, rape, um, abuse, there's child abuse, or, or um, spousal abuse, or elder abuse, or sexual abuse. Well, why does all that happen? Bullying, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, racism, reverse racism, quote-unquote. Why is there sexual immorality and pornography and sex trafficking and child trafficking, slavery, why is there gender confusion? Why is there abortion? Why is there cheating and stealing and hypocrisy and rioting and robbery? Why are there tragedies and suffering and disease and war and death? And any other things that you really, really, really don't like? A little bit more personal here. Have you ever wondered why you might have some of these things in your own heart, such as pride or selfishness or hatred? or jealousy, or fear, or lust, or laziness, or greed, or covetousness. Maybe pressing even a little bit more. Have you ever wondered why you do things like this in life? Lie to other people? Lie to loved ones? Tell half-truths? 
Why do you hurt others with your words or actions? Sometimes it's family members, sometimes it's parents, sometimes it's children, brothers or sisters. Why do others hurt you with their words or their actions? Why do you overeat or oversleep or undereat or undersleep? Why do you watch pornography and or other inappropriate things? Why do you disrespect or disobey your parents if you're a, a child? Why do you discourage or dishearten your children if you're a parent? Why do you judge others unfairly? Why do you look down on others? Why do you look down on yourself? Why do you care so much about what others think of you? I'm just mentioning all these things because these are things that, at least some of them, probably all of us struggle with. And the Bible tells us why all of these things exist. It's found in the very beginning book of the of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. And this is so foundational and so incredibly important for all of us to know today. If you take this chapter that we're about to get into out of the Bible, you have no explanation for the presence of sin in the world. Did you know that no other religion in the history of the world, no other ancient documents that have come down through the ages, offers any explanation about the origin of sin. They might speak of good and evil in their writings, in their religions, but Genesis 3 in the Bible is the only one that explains how the world became sinful and evil. Okay, so I'm going to read our text this morning. It's from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. And we need to know the problem, dear people, so that we can know the solution, right? Um, God gives us both in his grace, and in his love, in his truth. And so Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, is our passage for this morning as we start this corruption section of our sermon series. And so please stand, if you are able, as I read these first seven verses of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Please be seated. So you have an insert um, in your bulletins today, a little bit more area to write if you are taking notes. But um, our outline, um, just kind of heading there, is how sin how sin entered into the world. Okay, very straightforward, um, very plain. This is the story of how sin entered into the world. The truth, the reality, the fact of how sin and every other single problem and suffering and disease and despair and death following entered in. And so the first, first thing is this in verses 1 through 3 that the clarity and authority of God's word is attacked. The clarity and authority of God's word is attacked. It starts off in verse 1, saying that now the serpent was more crafty. The serpent just shows up. And it doesn't tell us how much time has passed since the end of creation week. Right? Chapters 1 and 2 tell the amazing, beautiful history of God's creative work. 
right? We went over this the last several weeks. In six days, he made everything, and then he ceased. He rested on day seven. In God's sight, as we come to chapter three, all was what? Very good, very good. Beyond just good, right? It was very good, according to God. Perfect, even. Pristine, pleasant. Paradise. So the entire universe has been created. The heavens and earth, all the things in it. And now the serpent shows up at some unspecified, undetermined period of time after that. He shows up in the garden, in this paradise, which is soon to become paradise lost. So who is this serpent? We should know who our enemies are, because um, that's very important in the battle against sin, right? So... Most of us at Faith Bible Church uh, know this, but we are going to go through it nonetheless because it's good to be reminded of these things. The serpent is none other than Satan, the devil. You want to jot down Revelation 12, verse 9, and Revelation 20, verse 2, if you're taking notes. And I'm not going to read it yet, but Satan is called the serpent of old in those verses, along with 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, the serpent. Satan is a created being. He's an angel, actually a fallen angel. And I think it's helpful. It's worth taking time to read a couple passages. And so you want to jot these down. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. I'm actually going to read a few verses from each of those chapters. First, Isaiah 14. Listen to verses 12 to 14, which is primarily talking about a human king, the king of Babylon, who is really this evil, wicked, perverse, twisted ruler. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14, primarily speaking of the human, wicked king, but yet pointing to Satan himself. And you can hear and listen to this grandiose poetic language, which seems to be pointing to something even more than, than a human king. Verse 12 in Isaiah 14 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And uh, verse 15 says, just to add on to that, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. All right, let's turn uh, a few books to the right in your Bibles, to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28 here, again, talking about a, another human king, the king of Tyre, Ezekiel 28, primarily. But verses 12 to 18 give this, again, very grand, very poetic description, which seems to be alluding to, pointing to, something more than just a human king. Verse 12 of Ezekiel 28 says, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets, was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. 
By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Two more verses here. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Verse 18, by the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I've turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. Right now, if you want, you can turn with me to Revelation 12, verse 9. Revelation 12, verse 9, which I already mentioned. And it says there, Revelation 12, 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And so devil, it comes from the Greek verb, which means to slander or to falsely accuse. So devil means slanderer, a one who falsely accuses, the accuser. And Satan means adversary or enemy. So when you hear that word Satan, that name Satan, automatically to your mind you should think enemy, an adversary, not for me, hates me, hates the world, hates God. He's the enemy. And the passages that I read, and including the verse from Revelation 12 that I just read, says that Satan was thrown out of heaven in his pride, in his rebellion. Right? He didn't, he didn't want to be with God. He, he didn't even want to be like next to God. He, he wanted to be above God. He wanted to be like God in that he would be the one who was in authority. We read those five I wills there in Isaiah chapter 14. And so we often think of Satan or have in our minds that he was a, a fallen angel. And in a sense, that's correct. But maybe even more correct is that he is a, a kicked out angel. Okay, God booted him out of heaven. And so Revelation 12, a few verses earlier, it says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Okay, and this is uh, where we understand that there were some um, one-third of the angels that God created who went down, who were kicked out, who were thrown out of heaven, went with Satan down to the earth. And so two-thirds are holy angels now and one-third are demons and Jesus says in Luke 10, verse 8, that he himself saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so this is kind of the backstory of the devil. And this is the truth. This is the reality. Sometimes we think not enough about our enemy, our adversary, the one who is very, very powerful and at work all the time, prowling around and seeking someone to devour, especially believers. And... We need to be aware of that. Sometimes we're not conscious enough of the devil and demons. And sometimes we are too conscious and too afraid and too blaming everything on, on the devil and demons and, and influence of them. So we want to have the biblical center and understand that he is a power, but guess what? One little word shall fell him, right? Um, and that word comes from Christ. And so... Uh, back to Genesis 3, most biblical authorities say that this is a literal serpent. We're asking, who is this serpent? Well, it's a literal serpent that Satan is possessing, he has possessed, and is speaking through. So this serpent, who Satan is either using to speak or is possessing literally inside, um, is crafty, shrewd, cunning. That word can be used, and it's used in the Bible in positive ways. Um, and also in negative ways. Here it implies something that is deceitful, deceptive, okay? a negative kind of implication. 
And he says to the woman, Indeed, God has, has God said. And um, we notice that he goes to the woman, right? Not to the man. And it makes us ask, does he know something about them? Does he know something who, about who's the leader and who's the follower? Or does he know something about their weaknesses and their strengths? Hey, possibly he goes to the woman because he knows that she's not the one in authority, according to God's design. But in any case, he comes with this sneak attack, and his attack is on the clarity and authority of God's word. It's a question he asks her, right? Like, hey, uh, really? Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And this is meant to evoke doubt in God, and doubt in God's word. And when we look carefully, we see that Satan uses God's word. There's some accuracy, there's some truth in it, but then he leaves something out, right? He omits a critical piece. He says, did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? When What did God actually say in verse 16 of chapter 2? He says, from any tree of the garden... You may eat freely. Small change, but how completely different God's word, actual word, is compared to Satan's twisted suggestion. So this attack on God's word is subtle. It's sneaky. It's not a frontal attack. It's like he's hinting and saying, is it good for you, Eve, for God to say that you can't eat from all of the trees of the garden? Would a good and loving God really say such a thing? So he's implanting within the mind the idea that God is being unreasonably strict and not letting Adam and Eve eat from all the trees like maybe he should. Planting that thought. So it makes the innocent woman start to think, hmm, maybe. Is God withholding something from me? Is my freedom, my choices being limited somehow? That's what's being planted into the thoughts of the woman. And Have you noticed these days, with you or just with society in general, that to this day, Satan and demons and the sinful world and the culture operate in the same exact way? They do the same exact thing? And listen, folks, this is happening not to make you more godly. This is not to make you love Christ and others more. Hey, this is to turn you against God. It's to turn you against anything that's good. It's to turn you away from all holiness and to tempt you into evil. And we might ask, I listed a, a whole bunch of things that we might wonder, you might wonder, did God really, really say these things? You might doubt it. Did God really say that there's only one true and living God? who's the author of all life and therefore the authority of everyone who has ever lived? Did he really say that? Did he really say that believing in Jesus as personal Savior and Lord is the only way that people can get to heaven when they die? There's only one way. Did he really say that? Or, you know, there's actually other ways. Did God really say that eternal life is a free gift of God? And that my goodness won't save me? No matter how many good works I do, I won't get it? I won't get eternal life? Did he really say it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Did God really say that everyone who rejects Jesus as personal Savior and Lord will receive God's eternal judgment in hell? Did he really say that? Did God really say... That judgment, his condemnation in hell for everyone who refuses to believe in his son, okay, including fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, the covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, if they reject Christ and the gospel, that all of them are going to hell? Did God really say that for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons, this is fornicators, and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, 
that their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, spiritual final hell. Did he really say that? Or or did I just make that up? I actually read Revelation 21, verse 8. (laughs) So the answer is yes to all these questions, a resounding yes. Emphatic, undoubted, clear as day, yes. Listen, I have a few more questions, okay? Did God really say that premarital sex is sinful? That cohabitation, living with your boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage is sinful? That looking even once at pornography is sinful? That watching it habitually without repentance is damaging to your life and damning to your soul? Did he really say that? Did he really just point blank say that homosexuality is sinful? That both homosexual acts and desires are sinful to him? Did he really say there's, there's only two genders, male and female? Listen, did God really say that all racism and pride is sinful and wrong and worthy of his judgment? Yes, he did. Did God really say that all hate, malice toward anyone is sinful and wrong and worthy of his judgment, including hatred towards homosexuals, hatred towards heterosexuals, hatred towards transgenders, plus Yes, he did say that all of it is sinful and worthy of his judgment. Did God really say that all hate towards blacks and towards whites and towards Hispanics and towards Asians and towards men and towards women, towards anyone, is sinful and wrong and worthy of his judgment? Did God really say that the lies that you told this past week is worthy of his judgment? Your pride, my pride, Your immorality, my immorality, my self-righteousness. Last question. Did God really say that any and all sin can be forgiven by him? Including every single one of the sins that I asked about in the past couple of minutes. Did he really say that? Forgiveness can happen for you the moment you go to God and ask him for it. Forgive you of your sins and confess that you want to believe in his son. You want Jesus to be your personal Savior? That you submit to him as your living Lord? Did he really say that you could have the gift of eternal life and forgiveness of all your sins and go to heaven when you die? Amazingly, the answer to that question is an emphatic yes as well. It's good to search our hearts, even this moment, as we consider some of those questions and we we land on the good news of the gospel. Did God really, really say those things? He did. Every single one of them. Yes. The question is, do you believe what God says? Or are you falling for Satan and the world's and the culture's lies about heaven and hell and salvation and this lifestyle and that lifestyle and hate and pride and racism and all that? Are you confused or do you just believe what God says? Let's look at verse 2. Eve's answer to the serpent is telling. The woman said to the serpent, Well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Uh, We should notice that, first of all, the woman doesn't find anything strange about a serpent talking. Uh, Maybe she should have. Maybe not. Keep in mind, she's probably not been living all that long at this point. Again, we don't know exactly how much time it took for Satan to show up there and start this temptation. Um, But she's either too innocent or maybe too struck by this creature's line of questioning that she stays. She stays to have further conversation with it. And uh, by the way, many scholars, modern commentators today, try to point to this talking serpent issue. And... uh, They believe, they say, that clearly this is a mythological tale. It was written to teach a spiritual or moral lesson. It's not, they say it's not meant to be taken literally. Um, But again, there's nothing in this historical narrative that indicates that this is allegory or metaphor or symbolic or mythology. Uh, The text doesn't all of a sudden turn from narrative history genre into allegorical story genre. Okay, just prior in Genesis chapter 2, you remember God was speaking audibly to the man 
And here in Genesis chapter 3, Satan, through this serpent, is speaking, or in the serpent, is speaking audibly to the woman. This is God's story of beginnings, believe it or not. It's his story. It's truth. It's narrative history. It's telling us what happened at the beginning. So the supernatural, things that are beyond nature, outside of nature, are normal to God. He himself is beyond nature. And he has revealed to us the reality of a spiritual realm and spiritual beings. Besides God himself, us as people are made in his image, and there's angelic beings, including the devil and demons. So just uh, before we go on here, just note too that later in history, uh, God allows a donkey to speak. You remember that? However many thousands of years later in Numbers. And also demons speak. When, in Jesus' time, demons speak um, through possessed men. So again, there's all sorts of miracles and supernatural occurrences in God's story from beginning all the way to the end. Okay? So the woman replies to the serpent, and, and it shows some doubt has been already placed in her mind, right? Just three quick things here. When she replies, first of all, she says that God said, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. And that sounds right. Sounds okay. Until we look again at what God actually said. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. That's what he actually said. Chapter 2, verse 16. So the woman leaves out something. God said we may eat from fruit of the trees of the garden. When really, you can eat from any of them. Freely, abundantly, lavishly, generously, to your heart's content. Second, from the fruit of the tree. She adds something, which is in the middle of the garden. God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Right? God did not say that. Whether Adam added this or Eve just made it up on the spot, flustered, I don't know. But for sure, this was an addition to God's actual word. And lastly, she leaves out that God said, you will surely die. Right? Instead, she says, to the serpent, or you will die. That's what's going to happen. Right? It seems to decrease the level of certainty of what God promised. Okay? So the cunning serpent, Satan, jumps on this. Right? How did sin enter into the world? Satan's attack on the clarity and authority of God's clear word. And next, in verses 4 and 5, the truth of God's word and God's goodness is denied. Okay, these next two points are going to go a lot quicker than the first one. So verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Um, Satan didn't forget <laughs> to add that certainty, that emphasis. He says, surely you will not die. He emphatically goes against what God clearly and exactly said. Right? After that sneaky opening, which planted that seed of doubt within the woman, he quickly goes in for the kill with a straight-up denial of what God said. What audacious pride the devil has. Verse 5, he gives the reasoning. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And his denial of God's clear word is followed by this explanation, a false one. And it's trying to imply that God is trying to keep something good from them, right? And uh, by the way, those yous there, um, are plural. So he's not just addressing the woman, but he's, he's saying to them both. And so notice again, partial truths of what the serpent says here. Your eyes will be opened. This is actually true, um, though this is not a good thing. Okay? Their eyes are not going to be opened in a good way. Um, he says you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is also true. Look at verse 22. Skip ahead for a moment. Towards the end of chapter, two, uh, chapter 3, verse 22, after God um, pronounces the, the judgments on the serpent and the woman and the man. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Okay, so listen. Ironically, Adam and Eve were already like God, weren't they? In, in some manner. Because Genesis 1.26 says that, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Okay, so they were made in the image of God. So in some sense, they were like God. But the addendum is the kicker, right? Knowing good and evil. So before they disobeyed God's word, they only knew good. 
But after, as Satan tempts them here and they succumb, they know good and evil. And by that act of sin against God, they know evil experientially. Okay, they, they, don't, they won't just know the difference between good and evil and right and wrong. Okay, they have that in them. But they will know what evil is by experience. Okay, that's not a good way to know good and evil. All right? And we're all given a conscience. We all know right and wrong, false and true. And like we have that sense um, of, of morality in us. Okay, it's good to know the difference between right and wrong. But knowing evil by experience is, is where it's uh, going bad here. So Satan does not explain that part of it, does he? Only that they will be like God in this way. So once again, it seems like God is keeping something, something desirable from Adam and Eve, raising doubts about his goodness and his wisdom. Okay, so the truth of God's word and God's goodness is denied. Yes, it's on the, on the screen there. Right? There's your blanks. The truth of God's word and God's goodness is denied. He's attacking the character of God. And so, half-truths once again. Dear people, this is the way that uh, we are assaulted and God's character is assaulted and half-truths are complete lies, denying the truth of what God said and who God is. Okay? So once again, as I asked those questions in the opening, we really need to search our hearts on what we actually believe. Okay? God calls us to trust and believe his word, everything that he says, not our own wisdom, not the world's wisdom, not the devil's lies or half-truths, but the purity and perfection of God's loving truth. Okay? And so, of course, we need wisdom to live that out, to love others as God loved us and extend grace and all of those things. Guys, this is what it is to grow in wisdom, right? How to deal with difficult situations, how to deal with rough um, issues in life, different problems, different tragedies, different sufferings, um, different relational difficulties. God wants us to apply his word. We need to know it and, and live it. All right, so lastly, there's the attack on the clarity and authority of God's word. There's the denial of God's truth and God's goodness. The setup is brief yet very effective. Verse 6 is the true vision of God is clouded by our senses. The true vision of God is clouded by our senses. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, this is an appeal to our senses, right? And our vision is clouded by our senses. Interesting, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 9, chapter 2, you remember, is the creation rewind of, um, of, of the creation week, right? Look at chapter 2, verse 9. It says, out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is what? Pleasing to the sight, and what else? And good for food. Right? The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the fruit on the trees were already those first two things that the Eve saw, that the woman saw. Going back to chapter 3, verse 6, right? She saw that the tree was good for food. Already was good for food. And that it was delight to the eyes. It was pleasing to the eyes, right? God didn't just make food and all look the same color and all the same shape and all the same texture and everything. Actually made a whole bunch of variety, right? Which stirs up our appetites, which makes us praise God for his creative genius and his gifts to us of uh, even making it good looking for us and good tasting and all of that. So those two things were there um, with all of the trees in the garden to some degree, to some level. But now she sees another thing that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's not in the description in chapter 2, verse 9, is it? So I just thought that was an interesting note. When she saw, she observed, she perceived those things, especially that it was desirable to make one wise, it's enough to cloud her right and true vision of God. The one who created her and all the wonderful animals and the trees, and the plants, and the grass, and the garden, and the fruit, and the water, and the nature above, and nature below. Everything. The God who blessed her and Adam with one another, with everything that they needed, both spiritually and physically, in order to serve him, and obey him, and worship him, and to love him, and to love each other. Everything given to enjoy God himself, the greatest gift, 
and to enjoy each other without shame? It's been clouded. That vision, that truth, that perception has been obscured. Her perception now of this great truth about God, that he's good and he's wise, he knows what's best for her and for the man, and his purpose for giving them this one prohibition, maybe one, that it was for their blessing, was for his glory, was now questioned for the first time. Imagine, the character of God is put in question by the creature. And the creature is put in the seat of judgment of God's character, God's goodness. How dare we? How dare she? How dare the devil? Questioning, doubting the perfection, goodness, the love, the wisdom of God? We might ask ourselves if we've been tempted to do that in some form or fashion this past week. And the point is that her judgment is clouded through an appeal to the senses. We, we mentioned them already. The passage that we normally go to to speak to us today is 1 John 2, 15, right? Uh, which says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, for the love of the world is not from the Father. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 1 John 2, 15 through 16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Hey, the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. The delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, was desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. Today, for us, how we are tempted, what we are tempted to love, hey, the things of the world, lust of the, our own flesh, the lust of our own sight, our eyes, what we look at, boastful pride of life, a pride, self-righteousness, arrogance, intellectual, mental, heart, pride. And so I want to mention here, uh, very importantly, that Satan tempts us, right? Just like he tempted our first parents. He tempts us for our destruction, and for his own satisfaction. It's not for anything other than his own self-gain and hatred, out of hatred. But God tests us. God tests us. He doesn't ever tempt us. 1 Corinthians 10 it is, I believe. James chapter 1. And God tests us for our good, for our sanctification, for our refining. He does. There are things in life that are very, very difficult. Some things that you've been through that are beyond any difficulty that I've ever experienced. And yet, for his children, those are gifts also. Every good thing given and every perfect gift comes from above. That's actually the culmination of that passage in James chapter 1. Even things that are seemingly trials, fiery, difficult, severe trials, are for our good, for your good. And he tests us for that and ultimately for his glory. And so I just think of that when Jesus resisted the temptations in the wilderness, right? For those 40 days and nights and um, same pattern. Okay, I'm not going to get into it right now, but let's go to the last um, part of verse 6. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband and with, with her, and he ate. Okay, uh, guys, the, the action, like there's a lot of teaching, you know, just uh, in the previous verses in this passage up to here. And the action, though, is very straightforward. It's, it's, and that's the way the Hebrews did it a lot, right? They front load on, on a lot of information and a lot of uh, learning, didactic material. And then at the end, uh, the, the result is brief. And it's, it's bitter here. Um, let me just say that there's nothing here that says that there was some kind of spiritual, special property uh, about the fruit um, that made it part of the knowledge of, of good and evil, that it contained something like that. Uh, whether or not there was, that's not the point. That's not important. What is important is that the woman succumbed to the temptation and disobeyed God's word. Okay, this was an act of cosmic treason. And we are sometimes... Uh, tempted to minimize uh, the sin of Adam and Eve. And it was just one thing. How could they? 
right? And how could God, you know, everything happened because of that one? I mean, this is cosmic treason against the holy, good, perfect, wise, loving, gracious, amazing, awesome God. They had one thing not to do, and she did it. Hey, this is um, on a grand, epic, just magnanimous and not in a good way, okay? incredibly vast sin and offense, an awful thing to do against the God who has given everything. And so, Miranda of James again, uh, for us in, in this time, this side of the cross, you, you stumble in one point, stumble one time, and God says that's worthy of eternal judgment, Right? You break one law, you've broken them all. That's how holy and awesome God is. And so, believing the word and the voice of a talking serpent, okay, sneaky, cunning Satan, who is a creature, okay, believing the word of a creating be- created being over the word and voice and command of the God who created that thing. Okay, this is utter, utter sin rebellion, arrogance, and offense. So like I said, the description here is straightforward and simple. She took from his fruit and ate. It doesn't tell us what fruit it is, right? There's always those pictures of apples or pomegranates or whatever, okay? It doesn't, it doesn't say and it doesn't matter. Um, important thing is that she literally took fruit from the tree. Again, no symbolism, no allegory here. She literally took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate it. God said not to do it, and she did it. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. That's pretty straightforward as well. Okay, the only like, kind of question is, what does it mean when it says she, uh, he was with her? Like with her when Satan was tempting and lying to her, and he overheard everything, he was right there? Or does it mean that he was just with her in the garden and wasn't actually there when this conversation was happening? but just with because in proximity in the garden didn't actually... Okay, so uh, I kind of lean on that because First Timothy chapter 2 says that uh, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Okay, it's kind of like the only other hint we have uh, in, in the rest of Scripture about that. So when I put those together, Adam was with Eve when she, when she offered the fruit, that's for sure. He was not deceived by the servant, but ate the fruit anyway. And he as the head of the relationship and the human race. He bears the ultimate responsibility, even though he was not the one who was deceived. So whatever the case, Adam also disobeyed God. And he bears the brunt of the responsibility. Why? Because he's the leader in their relationship. Okay, wherever he was, whatever he was doing, he just took it from her and he ate. So we're going to see next week that God knows what happened He knows who did what and when exactly, yet he calls out the man first, right? Oh man, where where are you? Verse 9 of chapter 3, we'll get to it next week. But I want to conclude very quickly with verse 7. And this is uh, the deadly consequences of listening to any word or voice over God's. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed up fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Their eyes were were open. Yep, it was true. They were being open, but it was not an opening of eyes that led to knowledge which leads to life and freedom and shamelessness, okay, in the good way. It actually is the knowledge, opening of the eyes was the knowledge of their nakedness, which now led to being a cause for shame and guilt and fear, which we're going to see more next time. All of a sudden, they're compelled to cover up their nakedness. So that's what they do with those. Get some fig leaves together, sew them up, and cover themselves. Okay, so um, it's important to know that Adam and Eve, the question everybody asks is, well, they didn't die, so did God lie to them? Right? Well, listen, they did not physically die on the spot after they ate that forbidden fruit, but spiritual death means separation from God, a broken spiritual fellowship. Broken relationship with God is spiritual death. And then physical death also began. God didn't kill them right on the spot. They didn't die right at that moment. It was actually hundreds of years later. But this, um, before this rebellion against God, there was no sin and therefore no death. And so now, afterwards, mankind was to face 
physical death. They were to face physical death. So it was actually true. Surely they did die on that day. This was the result of original sin. The moment Eve and Adam sinned against God, their souls were separated from God, and their bodies began to die. So that spiritual separation, that spiritual deadness, along with impending physical death, have been passed on to all of us, to all of humanity, every single person afterwards, including all of us here today. And uh, Romans 5, verse 12, right? We'll get more of this next week, but listen. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. is such an incredible, incredibly important verse. And so um, we don't have time to get into it uh, more today. But listen, as we close here, what is wrong with us? That's the title of the sermon, right? What is wrong with us? Um, the answer is everything with a capital E, right? And we'll get into it more as we talk about corruption um, the next couple of weeks. But the gospel says that we can still actually know God through faith in his son who loved us and gave himself, gave his life for us. Okay, that's the good news. Okay, it's not a lost cause. Paradise lost, yes, but it's not a lost cause. You are not a lost cause because there's hope in the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. So I, I call you, I invite you to come to him if you don't know him today. Okay, put your faith and trust in the one and only Savior. So there's some application questions which I will bring up during our care group time. And uh, hopefully um, this will help us as we look forward to next, next week's uh, passage and continue to talk about corruption. But I always want to land on the hope of the gospel. Okay, God's grace is greater than our sin, as we sang last week. And um, this is where we get our motivation uh, to continue to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you again for uh, the refresher from Genesis chapter 3 and uh, some things that perhaps some of us needed to be reminded of, some questions that maybe we need to consider for our own hearts, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, or maybe we are not actually walking with the Lord. Maybe we actually don't know him. So I pray, God, that your word, your truth, your precious gospel would encourage and also penetrate our hearts, and we would consider you, God, above any other voice and word in this world, including our own sinful souls and our own sinful hearts speaking to us. Rather, we would abide in your truth. Thank you for your love and grace toward us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.